so often throughout the course of history. Patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. Well, we've got some pretty heavy stuff to cover today, but good stuff. Understand, when I say heavy, I'm not meaning hang your head, you know, let a black cloud gather over your head and follow you around. This uh, This isn't cause to mourn, but we've got some pretty significant challenges ahead of us. And one of the things we're going to talk about today is how hard it is to organize ourselves as patriots because there is such a such a huge possibility of a government informant or a provocateur or some undercover agent getting into those organizations and in some way urging some kind of illegality for the purpose of entrapping people. I know that makes it sound like nobody in the patriot movement would ever do anything wrong. I get it. There are patriots of every stripe, and there are some who are more radicalized than others. I think the vast majority of patriots, however, fall somewhere in the idea of, look, I know something is terribly wrong. I know I have a responsibility to stand up and correct it. I'm just not sure how to go about it. And I understand that there may even be some unpleasantness, you know, associated with with having to correct such problems. One of the biggest examples I can think of here in the last Well, even in just the last week or so, Um, if I'm understanding correctly, I haven't seen more than just a couple of clips, but a federal judge has refused to allow the federal government to continue to sit on 14,000 hours of video from the U.S. Capitol from January 6th. Now, why is this important? I mean, on the one hand, they're saying, now, we can't release that. That's those are, uh, you know, that's that's a matter of security for the Capitol. Why someone could see this and they could analyze it. They could, they could analyze entry points and, you know, how to better overcome it next time. All right, that's, that may be a fear, but, but at the same time, you're talking about a public building. You're not talking about, you know, this is, uh, this is the uh, layout to the inner, inner workings of the White House or, you know, Camp David or something like that. This is not a matter of we've got to keep it secret or, you know, people will take advantage. But here's the thing, of the, of the clips I've seen, it's very apparent. One of them in particular that, that I saw shared on Twitter was like, you know what? You see these guys come in through, um, it looks like they come in through one of the doors, maybe through one of the windows, but the first people through the, the door, so to speak, come in as a team. They are dressed almost identically, all masked, wearing backpacks, um, not necessarily looking like Antifa, but, you know, they're, they're very carefully con- concealing their identity. But here's the thing that, that will strike anybody who, who sees this. You see these guys moving with precision, with efficiency, with purpose. 
In other words, it wasn't just, you know, some wild-haired MAGA hat-wearing Yahoo who decided on a whim, hey, let's break a window and get in here and see what we can do, you know. Um, whoever it was had training. Now, that doesn't mean I know who it was. So if I tell you categorically I know they were feds, I don't know. All I can say is if you watch the video for yourself, you can see these people come in, you see them move as a team, and they are very quick. They know exactly where they are going. They know exactly what they are doing. There is not a wasted motion among them. The military guys among us would say they had their crap wired tight. I mean, they they really were practiced in whatever it was they, they were doing. And then there's a second video which shows <clears throat> the larger crowd of people coming in, but you can see the Capitol Police officer there at the door, holding the door, ushering them in, you know, waving it. Come on, keep moving, keep moving. And these people are coming in. There's some people who are waving flags. Most people are just walking in with their cell phones like, I can't believe it. Wow, we, we're actually in the Capitol. Look at this. These are the people who right now are being held or being charged with, well, not insurrection, although that's the word we keep hearing, but they keep being charged with um, what is it? Protesting without permission in the Capitol or, you know, breach of public peace. I don't know. But for all the talk we hear about insurrection, nobody is being charged with it. There are no weapons apparent except in the hands of law enforcement officers. So there's there's quite an quite a narrative taking place. But the most important thing is you look at that first group of people who come in Whoever they were, whether they were feds, whether they were Antifa, whether they were just an extremely right-wing, well-trained death squad, I don't know. But if they weren't feds, I think it's a pretty safe bet that we would have watched that loop endlessly since January 6th. It would have been playing every time the news starts. Why, oh, look, here they come, here they come. And we would have known the names of every one of those people. But we don't. They were allowed to come in. And then they were allowed to leave. And, of course, the FBI is still sitting on, uh, you know, when when they are asked, were there FBI informants? Were there agents provocateur? Were there undercover FBI agents participating in that breach of the Capitol? Crickets. They won't answer. Why do you suppose that is? Hmm. But the the bottom line here is there are a lot of people who have been sitting in solitary confinement awaiting trial for one of the most serious things that could be thrown at him. And it just, it doesn't match up with what you can actually see. So it it brings me to this, uh, this article I found by Brandon Smith. This is published on alt-market.us, organizing patriots in the face of government informants and false flags. And I'm going to share some things with you as well that, uh, that pertain to uh, Bundy Ranch, because Brandon Smith talks about this, as well as the Malheur standoff. And I want you to know the things I share with you come from firsthand experience, either at Bundy Ranch myself or with the key players at Bundy Ranch and at the Malheur Wildlife Occupation. Because for some reason, I don't know why, fate put me right there with a front row seat and with a firsthand relationship with many of the key players in those events. And both of those events had more than their fair share of government informants and people who were there trying to urge others to do things that were illegal. First, let's talk about Brandon Smith's article. 
He says, there is a simple fact that must be understood when it comes to the fight for liberty. Such a fight cannot be won by lone individuals. He says, freedom requires organized resistance. It doesn't matter how many millions of people stand against an authoritarian regime. If they're completely isolated from each other, they will lose. It's a guarantee. This is why a considerable portion of establishment money, energy, and propaganda is directed at defusing or sabotaging any semblance of conservative organization. This includes engineering false flag events and creating potential terror attacks from thin air so they can be blamed on constitutionally minded groups. This strategy is part and parcel of fourth generation warfare in which it's non-state players that are, that are in the action. And Brandon Smith says this is not conspiracy theory. This is conspiracy fact. And here are a couple of examples. He says, we know now, according to court documentation, the supposed scheme by a Michigan militia, I'm putting that in air quotes, made up of anarchists to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer and try her as a tyrant was heavily infiltrated by at least a dozen FBI agents and informants. In fact, the group was so infiltrated that the entire plot for the kidnapping was essentially planned out by the FBI. Now, that's the very definition of a false flag. The corruption and entrapment involved in the operation was so egregious that even the leftist media has reported on this. Yeah. Did you hear much about that? You probably haven't, you know, but uh, there for a while it was, oh, yeah, this militia in Michigan going to take the governor. They were going to execute her and kidnapper and you know when when it comes down to it no it looks like uh, more and more it was just a bunch of fbi informants urging other members of this group here's what we got to do here's what we got to plan for they took over and guided the narrative until it was something that could fit the definition of illegal and then the fbi swooped in to save us now i know that may you know if you're a fan of the fbi i don't know if you are you probably wouldn't be listening to this program but if you're a big fan of the fbi you might be thinking well this is unfair you know the fbi is just doing their part to keep us safe but i believe this agency has become so politicized that they are at the point where they have to actively entrap people they have to try to get people to do things in order to to spring the trap on them and then parade around in front of the cameras look what we saved you from see aren't you grateful would you like to kiss our rings? Here we go. Brandon Smith says, I remember a very similar situation occurred during the Malheur incident when Ammon Bundy, the son of Cliven Bundy, and a group of patriots decided to annex the wildlife refuge in its obscure buildings as a launching point for a revolution. It wasn't a revolution, by the way. This is one thing he, he does get wrong here. They were taking a hard stand against the federal government's abusive actions toward ranchers there in Harney County. Specifically, though, they were there to stand for a family that had been, that the father and son had been wrongfully imprisoned. I should say wrongfully re-imprisoned. But the idea was they went to the, the Malheur Wildlife Refuge with the idea that we are going to occupy this under a legal principle known as adverse possession by which they will simply take possession of it and gain ownership of it. And then they were to return that county land and that that refuge to the people of Harney County who could then decide, what do we want to do? How do we want to protect the resources? How do we want to use these resources, you know, that, uh, that benefit us rather than us just continually being locked off more and more and more land? 
So it wasn't a revolution. And when they went to the Malheur Wildlife Refuge, there was plenty of talk beforehand about why they were doing this. Now, this is going to come into play as to, well, we're talking about informants. One of the ways that we know this is because there is a terrific series. It's a, it's a documentary series, four-part ep- episode, a four-episode docuseries called Lavoie, Dead Man Talking. This is Lavoie Finnicum that they're talking about, the rancher killed by Oregon State and federal law enforcement on January 26th of 2016. There are tape recordings that were made by undercover informants who were sitting at the various meetings at this and that cafe in, in Burns, Oregon. And, and the bottom line is the FBI, the federal government, had infiltrators among them from the very beginning. That's how they got those recordings. We'll come back to, to what the recordings were and why they were there shortly. But Brandon Smith says, though I was a supporter of the efforts at Bundy Ranch, I was vehemently against Malheur because the whole situation seemed grossly suspect. Now, I'm going to confess, I was in the same boat as him. And I say this as someone who has personally been friends with Ryan Bundy for at least the last 16 years. I'm trying to remember if I met him before then, but I have been good friends, as in personal friends, hanging out with the guy, talking with the guy, meeting with him regularly for at least 16 years. I've known Ammon Bundy since uh, the, the Bundy Ranch incident back in 2014. I've been friends with their family since, so just in interest of full disclosure, I have personal first-hand experience with the family as well as having been at Bundy Ranch in 2014. And when uh, when Ammon and Ryan and Lavoie Finnicum, who I also became personal friends with, when they went up there to Malheur, and I first heard about it, I was like, what the heck are these guys doing? So I, I was a doubter, too. To me, the strategy made no sense. The rationale made no sense. The sight of what uh, Brandon calls it a standoff, it was not a standoff. It was an occupation. Made no sense. And the public optics were terrible. He's right about that. The public optics were. But Ammon felt there was no better way than to make a hard stand, as in to physically occupy that. And people ask, well, couldn't you have done that without your guns? In fact, somebody asked Lavoie Finnicum this on my radio show. Why didn't you guys just leave your guns and go occupy the place? And I thought Lavoie's answer was actually pretty thoughtful. He says, well, if we had done that, the feds would have just come in there, pepper sprayed us, zip tied us, and rolled us up and been home for dinner. But because there were members of the occupying group who were armed. Now, look, they didn't go in there and kick anybody out at gunpoint. They went in there, and the place was deserted. I believe it was either New Year's Day or... Anyway, everybody was off for the New Year's holiday. There was no one at the refuge, at least where the the buildings were. They found a key box, opened up the key box. They had access to the buildings. And with that, they said, well, then we're going to stay here. We're going to stay here until this land is given back to the, the people of Harney County. So there were no guns pointed at each other. There was no, you know, siege mentality, at least there at the refuge. Now, the town of Burns was taken over by the FBI, and there was very definitely a siege attitude there. They shut down the school. I think that became their command post. There were barricades put up. There was, you know, armed security running around everywhere. There were actually FBI agents dressed like patriots going around harassing people. And I'm trying, I cannot remember the name, Chris, uh, I forget his last name. He was, uh, he was the fire chief or the fire marshal there. 
um, he actually ended up quitting his job because he encountered a group of these provocateurs posing as militia, posing as patriots, going around harassing the people there in Burns. And he saw what they were. He, he knew they were not legitimate you know, people from you know, the, the patriot organizations who were on hand there at Malheur. Anyway, Brandon Smith says, look, it was an anti-Bundy ranch, in his opinion. What took place up there in Oregon was anti-Bundy ranch, a situation in which all the dynamics were in favor of the feds and against the liberty movement. And he says, not surprisingly, Malheur had been influenced and in some cases was arranged by federal informants and agents. These people were whispering in the ear of Ammon Bundy the entire time while the FBI authorized them to commit criminal acts. And there were so many paid employees of the FBI at Malheur that when it came out in the trial that followed, the jurors acquitted nearly every of the defendants involved. I think there was one guy who was charged with taking a truck that didn't belong with him, and he was charged with, uh, with some form of larceny. And I think rightly so. He was using it for personal use and, you know, did not have a right to do that. But I remember the intense reaction when that uh, not guilty verdict was handed down. And for the record, I didn't think it was going to happen. I thought for sure that uh, this time Ammon and Ryan and uh, the rest of the folks who were up there with them were all going to be spending the rest of their lives in prison because they were being talked up as domestic terrorists. And, oh, my goodness, they they took over and they were trying to establish this this, you know, militant society there in, in peaceful, you know, of Oregon, sorry, I'm I'm trying not to to be too uh, I'm trying not to be too harsh, but uh, Oregon's uh, leadership, wow, talk about some corruption and just statist control, top to bottom. It was pretty ugly. But if you watch the video, if you if you watch the documentary Lavoy, Dead Man Talking, you can see this for yourself. One of the most revealing things that came out of that uh, video was uh, watching um, or listening to an exchange between Oregon state law enforcement, the FBI, and various state legislators who had traveled from nearby states, from Idaho and from Washington, there to kind of get the facts on the ground. So they were meeting with Harney County officials. They were meeting with the FBI. They were meeting with Oregon state police about uh, the occupiers there at the refuge. And you hear one of these guys, I, I, I'm trying to remember his, his name. I want to say it was, it was oh, I can't remember. He was a representative from Washington asking them, what crime have these guys committed? In fact, he came right up to a state police officer and said, can you tell us what state laws have been broken by the people occupying that uh, refuge? And the answer was quick, and it was unequivocal. Unequivocal, rather, it was no laws have been broken that we are aware of. You understand that? No laws. They, they, there were no charges at that time. So the question was then, then posed to the FBI. Well, are you aware of any federal laws that they have broken? And the answer was a squirrely, uh, the Department of Justice is working on that right now. I mean, what does that sound like to you? To me, that if I run that through the translator, well, the D- Department of Justice is working on this right now. We're digging like crazy to find something in the vast federal code that we can hang on these guys. Now, why is this important? It's important because the FBI 
did not have any arrest warrant issued for any of the participants when they made their arrests on January 26th of 2016, when Lavoy Finicum was shot to death in an ambush that was set up by federal and Oregon state law enforcement. This is hard for me to talk about from the standpoint of um, Lavoy Finicum actually is one of the finest human beings I have ever had the privilege of meeting. I mean, he, he is, uh, he was the epitome of a patriot and a good man, an honest man who saw an injustice and simply could not stand back and let it take place. And I think he knew the stakes. I think he understood that, you know, Lavoy, there, there's, uh, there's a target on you if you take part in this. But he reasoned, we've got to do something because right now, these people uh, in, in Oregon, you know, people in Harney County are suffering terribly. These ranchers are being put out of business, denied their property by all-powerful government at both the state, actually at the county, the state, and the federal level. There was collusion between all three of them. So when they left the refuge on the night of January 26th to drive to John Day, there were no arrest warrants. They found police uh, lined up and waiting for them as they left. How did the police know? Well, of course, they had informants. In fact, there was an informant driving the Jeep that Ammon was in. Lavoy was driving his own truck. And you can see the video shot by Shauna Cox, who was a, a, a passenger in Lavoy's truck. As they're driving along, she activates her cell phone, and you can hear Lavoy say, Oh, man, we've been had. And they get stopped by the police, and they pulled over and stopped. And, of course, there's laser dots, you know, dancing around on everybody, and there's guns pointed at them, and... Instructions being shouted through loudspeakers, and um, I can't remember who it was. Was it Ryan Payne? Anyway, one of one of them went to stick his hands out the window to show, look, I'm unarmed, and uh, somebody took a shot at him. I think it was with a less than lethal device, but you know, when you're being shot at, it may be hard to tell. And uh, he have, he stepped out of the truck, out of Lavoy's truck, uh, but Lavoy was telling him, "Hey, we're going to talk to the sheriff. We're not fleeing from justice. If you want to, if you want to catch up with us." We'll meet you in John Day, but we're going to go talk with the sheriff. And so he drove away from that stop. Now, Ammon was kept at the stop because, again, there was an informant that was actually driving the vehicle he was in. Lavoy continued on down the road. He was being pursued by police. And as he got down the road a mile or so, there was a dead man's roadblock set up. And if you've been in law enforcement, you probably know a thing or two about dead man's roadblock. This is like the last resort. It's what it really is, is a classic L-shaped military ambush. And it was very well thought out on a blind curve in a place far away from any cell service where nothing could be, you know, easily, you know, they couldn't easily call for help from the refuge or anything like that. But Lavoy had a split second as he was tooling along there to recognize that there was a complete blockage in the road. He could either plow into the trucks or he took the, the snowbank. He took the snowbank, stepped out of the truck. Um, he was he was daring the FBI agents go and, and the Oregon State Police. Go ahead. Shoot me. Shoot me. Go ahead. As he because they, they were, somebody was shooting at the truck from the moment they came into view. I mean, as crazy as this sounds, they, they were just. They were taking bullets, and even as he stepped out of the truck, shots were fired, presumably by the FBI, but somehow they covered their tail, and nobody is saying anything, and the the trial of uh, Agent Astorita 
did not uh, result in a conviction. But it did, you know, the, the stop did result in Lavoie being shot in the back three times and killed right there on that roadside. And Ryan, Ryan Bundy, as well as Shauna Cox, and then a young girl who was not charged, were all taken into custody there. But there were no warrants. There was no arrest warrant issued for them at that time. Can you see why something like that might matter? I mean, it's if it's a matter of we got to stop these guys, but we can't really enunciate what it is that they're doing. But we got to use deadly force, and we may even have to kill them, and then set up a roadblock where there's no room for error. Something's fishy. We'll come back to it. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. You know, Healthy Cell is a terrific lineup of products. They have products that are pill-free, gel-packed vitamins. Uh, Looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell, the leading innovator in nutritional supplements for cell health. Healthy Cell has a product that helps REM sleep, helps you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep supplement. The only sleep supplement that's designed to support all stages of sleep. And boy, is it needed now during all the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any product from Healthy Cell. I use them every day. I believe in them. And you should too. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. There was a time when Americans could rely on the Fourth Estate. Well, in these challenging times, the media is both reckless and complicit. AmericaOutloud.com. Top analysis from leading experts, articles, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty. Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. 
talking about uh, organizing patriots in the face of government informants and false flags. And I'm sharing a little bit of personal information I have uh, regarding Bundy Ranch and the Oregon uh, Malheur Wildlife Refuge takeover several years ago. I was, uh, I was not a part of what was a legitimate standoff at Bundy Ranch, but I was at Bundy Ranch um, the Thursday before that standoff took place. I was also there the morning before that standoff took place and was in close contact and a personal friend with Ryan Bundy and aware of what was going on at uh, every step of the way. And I also was uh, present for the Bundy family's trial in Las Vegas in which the charges were thrown out uh, the whole uh, indictment was thrown out without, with prejudice, rather, meaning they could not be tried again. Meanwhile, jurors in Oregon acquitted nearly everybody who was accused of crimes up there at the Malheur Ref- Refuge. And as I was mentioning in the last segment, Lavoy Finnicum shot to death alongside that snowy highway when there was not so much as an arrest warrant that had been issued. They, they could not, they being the authorities, could not enunciate what laws had been broken. They were still in the process of trying to concoct something that could be made to stick against these people. So it's, it's, the, the key here is you've got to be very cautious about organizing yourselves because as it came out in the Oregon trial, there were so many informants there were so many federal agents who were part of the group that was there at the refuge in fact what what's crazy is you know they they the prosecution had you know photos they had video look at these people why they brought in thousands of rounds of ammunition and they were out there practicing to kill federal agents right there You know who showed up with all the ammunition? You know who brought ammunition and offered, I'm going to train all your people and teach them how to to shoot? And then they took them out and they had, you know, a shooting range and they lined them up and they were doing target practices. They carefully took pictures and video. It was an informant. It was an FBI informant who brought the ammo and encouraged, let's get out there and let's practice just to show, you know, how dangerous these people were. Bit of a problem, don't you think? I guess the the bottom line is this. There's a lot that's not known by the public about either Bundy Ranch or about the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. And even in conservative circles, even in patriot circles, Brandon Smith has a couple of his facts wrong on this. That doesn't mean he's an evil person. It just means there are some key pieces of the puzzle missing for him. He's a sharp guy. If he is missing some of the key pieces of that puzzle it would make sense that the rest of the public is missing a lot of those pieces. Well, the centerforselfgovernance.com, you can access the Lavoie Dead Man Talking documentary there. I think they've got at least a couple of the episodes or a couple of the trailers on hand. This is uh, some very interesting information that uh, really doesn't get a lot of play because it doesn't fit the narrative. And, of course, when the jury in Oregon acquitted... Most everybody involved, I think there may have been one, maybe two people in Oregon who who took a plea deal because they were afraid to face the, the might of the federal government. Understandably, the feds, when they go after somebody criminally, will prevail about 97% of the time. That's according to, um, that's actually according to uh, Ammon's, one of Ammon's attorneys, um, Morgan Philpot, who was with him in the... Uh, the trial in Las Vegas that followed at the end of 2017 and early 2018. In Vegas, 
where the trial for what happened at Bundy Ranch in 2014 took place. Yeah, the juries, uh, the juries largely would not convict people there. In one of the first trials, there were a couple of guys who were convicted, one of whom uh, FBI informants got stinking drunk. They gave him whiskey and then encouraged him. So, you know, uh, now that you're good and wasted, uh, if you'd had a chance to shoot federal agents, would you have done it? And the guy's like, hell yeah, I would have, you know, speaking with a, you know, a, a belly full of blabbermouth soup. Okay. Unfortunately for the feds, they were not able to prove their case to the jury. And Soon, the the pattern began to emerge that the more jury members learned about what the feds had been up to and the steps that they had taken to try to provoke some kind of violent reaction. The jury wasn't buying it. Now, again, I was at the trial. I was there for the trial of the Bundy family in Vegas at the end of 2017. I was actually asked to be there as kind of a uh, media spokesperson for the family, at least using social media. We would do regular updates to get information out to the public that wasn't being reported on by the mainstream press. And there was a lot of press involved there. You know, you had the Southern Poverty Law Center out there, you know, to make sure that uh, the anti-hate group, uh, you know, point of view was done. A lot of environmentalist groups, you know, participating. And so I was there along with a few other independent journalists and independent uh, sources of truth. And it was very clear within a very short time that there was, there was malfeasance on the part of those federal agents. There was a vendetta between one particular BLM manager and, you know, the, the, he had a desire to go bring the Bundys to heel. He was going to go kick in their teeth and show them who was boss and did everything he could to provoke some kind of a of an incident of bloodshed that would have justified a real crackdown on the part of the federal government. When I visited Bundy Ranch, two days before the standoff occurred, again, this was in April of 2014, a friend and I drove down there just to kind of check it out, to, to see. Ryan had been telling me, he'd been on my radio show, he'd been talking about it, but I hadn't really seen for myself what it was like. And... I don't really have the words to adequately describe it. I've Look, I've never been to the DMZ in Korea, and it wasn't quite as militarized as that, but it was very clear that you were in occupied territory because every dirt track, every road, every pathway that led from the highway off into the desert, and there's, you know, there's just miles and miles of desert, they were all clearly posted, you know, do not enter, no trespassing. This road has been closed by order of the federal government, blah, 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 blah. But what really gave it the sense of being occupied was the fact that on every high point, every hilltop that you could see was a truck with guys with rifles. There was, uh, there was footage that had come out earlier from the Bundy family of sharpshooters aiming rifles at them. I mean, we're talking military overwatch and, you know, observation points, and there was cameras set up. And this is stuff that came out. The camera actually is the thing that unraveled the Fed's case. An agent who was, was being questioned, a BLM agent who was being questioned, mentioned something about, well, I could see the video feed, you know, in the command center. And the defense went, whoa, we specifically asked if there were any video cameras in operation. And we were told, no, there weren't. And they began to pull on that thread, and the whole case unraveled in front of everybody. And it was so interesting in the courtroom to see the the demeanor of the jury. I I was very 
concerned when I first saw that uh, that jury being seated. Number one, because it took a long time to, to get them seated. But once they got them seated, I was like, will, will they hear the truth or will they just, you know, do what they're supposed to do on the part of the prosecutors and realize how evil these people are and convict, you know, the Bundys. And I think uh, Ryan Payne was on trial along with Cliven and Ryan Bundy and um, and Ammon. But you could see the shift in in this in the demeanor of the jury once it came out that oh no the feds had actually lied about this, and Ryan you know Bundy did a brilliant job of defending himself in court, and actually got one of the other agents to admit yes in fact, BLM agents had lied about key parts of the investigation and it just it came apart like a soup sandwich. And you could tell when the jury was able to start um, submitting questions. Those questions were aimed at the government. They were aimed at the agents. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And when the judge declared a mistrial in December of 2017, you know, there was always the option. Well, okay, it's likely a mistrial. They, they, she called it on behalf of what appeared to be Brady violations, meaning there was... There was information that should there was information that should have been given over in discovery by the prosecution that could have been exculpatory. It could have helped prove the innocence of the defendants. But the prosecution, the government, sat on that information. So the judge had no choice. It was getting bad. I mean, it was there was enough egg on the face of the feds. The judge blew the whistle. Okay, um, I'm going to call this a mistrial. And when we came back to her courtroom on January 8th of 2018 the question was will she order a new trial or will she declare this to be dismissed with or without prejudice with prejudice it can't be retried without prejudice there's a possibility of those charges coming back now i was standing in line to get in the courtroom that morning and there was a lot of people there was more people than could fit into the courtroom and I was standing right in front of about a half dozen of the members of that jury. They had been dismissed, so they were, you know, free to, to come back. And in talking with those six members of the jury that, that were standing in line behind me, they told me not one of them was prepared to con- convict. In fact, they made it very clear. There was no way that in, on earth that that jury was going to convict these men of what they were charged with. Now, keep in mind, it only takes one person not to convict or to say not guilty to uh, to hang the jury. In this case, it sounded like the whole jury was was on board. And I asked them, so why did you come back here? Why are you here on your own time? And they were like, because we want to see this thing through. We wouldn't miss this for the world. And I sat there in the courtroom and uh, listened to the judge lay down the law. I watched, uh, oh my goodness, the, the uh, lead attorney for the prosecution, uh, uh, Steve Myrie, I watched the red travel up the back of his neck and through his ears as the judge just ripped him and his team apart for the grave injustice that they had committed, the injury that they had committed to justice through their behavior. And then when she announced that uh, the case would be dismissed without prejudice, you can think I'm weird if you want. I felt God's spirit in that courtroom. And I know for a fact that there were heads bowed in prayer throughout that courtroom as she prepared to make that announcement. Now, that's the last place I expected to feel God's spirit, but I did. And you could hear this quiet whisper, you know, go through the courtroom of, oh, thank God, you know, praise Jesus. You know, just people quietly expressing their gratitude. 
And then one guy got up and walked out of the courtroom. He almost made it out of the courtroom before he opened the doors of the hall and shouted, it's dismissed with prejudice. <laughs> and you could hear cheers erupt out in the hallway and the judge's like, all right, like, let's get this under control. A lot of tears running down people's faces. There wasn't a lot of fist bumps and bravado, but there was a great deal of gratitude that the Bundys had been delivered from, you know, what would have been several lifetimes in prison. Now, I know this is a part of the story that uh, that a lot of people aren't familiar with. And I hope this gives you at least some, if, if not some, some insight, at least, you know, an understanding that there, it, it makes a difference when you have a little bit more complete view of what took place there. And, and I have to admit, at the beginning, I was one of those who was like, wow, I, I don't understand what my friends, the Bundys, are doing. Either at Bundy Ranch, you know, when Cliven sent people, let's go get the cattle. I didn't understand why he was doing that. I didn't understand what Ammon was doing when he went up there and, and occupied, you know, the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. But I do know this. They were doing the best they could in almost impossible in an almost impossible situation to stand up for their rights or for the rights of others. And they were trying to put their faith in God to make it happen. And I remember a jailhouse interview with with Ammon shortly after he was arrested up in Oregon. Uh, there he is sitting there in his you know prison jumpsuit, and the reporter says, "Well, you know, Lavoy Finicum is dead. You know, there are a lot of people who are sitting in jail right now. Would you say it was worth it?" And I'll never forget Ammon saying, "As hard as this has been, yes, I would say it was worth it." He had to think for a minute before he spoke, but he said, "I also want to make clear that one day we will be freed." And when it happens, it will be very clear that it was the hand of the Lord that delivered us. And I remember the confidence with which he said that. There was just this this assurance in his voice and in his demeanor that uh, I thought, man, he, he really, he seems completely at peace. Which is amazing, considering he spent the better part of the next two years waiting in jail, being treated like a piece of government property, you know, before that trial could take place. But when it happened, there was no doubt who had delivered him. And, and I remember how his, his dad, talking with his dad, Cliven, Cliven said, I feel so bad for the guys who took plea deals. If they just could have, you know, if they just could have held out, if they'd have had a little more faith, you know, they, they could have seen their cases dismissed too. Well, they did what they thought was best at the time. And for them, it seemed like a plea deal might have been the good deal. So I hope this gives you just a little bit more insight. There's books have been written on on what happened at Bundy Ranch and what happened at Malheur. Um, and there, there's a lot of good information out there. There's also a lot of very bad information. And there's a lot of misinformation that uh, treats the Bundys like this one-dimensional caricature of uh, rowdy ranchers with guns shooting in the air, you know, who don't like to be told what to do. As opposed to people of faith standing up for their rights in the face of a very active tyranny that is targeting them for destruction. So I hope this at least gives you an idea. There's more to the story than you may have heard. I'm not saying I've got everything right and I'm the only one you can trust, but I was there for a good portion of it. I've had a front row seat, and as as far as I understand, you know, I, I believe that God allowed me to see those things so that I could be a witness of, of what took place. 
And that's why I'm telling you what I'm telling you. This is one of the most significant events. I think uh, there's going to come a day, and it'll probably be after all the uh, the woke ideology has fallen by the wayside. But I think there will come a day where the history books will reflect the the magnitude of what happened at Bundy Ranch as well as what happened at the Malheur Refuge. The truth's going to come out at some point. I'll keep doing my part to to get that out there. So I want to go back to Brandon Smith's article here to finish things up. He talks about the danger of organizing patriots in the patriots in the face of government informants and false flags. He asks, "What about the latest J6 rally in Washington D.C.?" This was the one a couple of weeks ago. Which was planned by, actually, I guess, was it just last week? Anyway, planned by a virtually unknown former Trump aide, quickly exposed as a potential honeypot designed to lure in conservatives. You probably saw the pictures of the army of plain clothes undercover feds that was so prevalent that the riot cops accidentally arrested an armed FBI agent thinking he was a protester. Now, there are a lot of people, Brandon says, in the alternative media breathing a sigh of relief that almost no one showed up for the J6 protest or fell into the trap. In fact, he says there were more reporters and feds there than actual activists. However, he says, I think we need to look at the bigger picture of why the government is staging such events in the first place. And it's not just to entrap a few conservatives. Brandon Smith says, if you think about it, the entire strategy is high cost minimum reward if we only look at it in terms of actual arrests. But if the idea is to catch and prosecute patriots, well, then they could infiltrate groups and engineer criminal actions for decades and achieve little to nothing. That's not the purpose of informants. The strategy is not to invade groups unnoticed. The strategy is to be noticed, to make sure the whole of the liberty movement believes if they ever try to organize in any way, the feds will be there to set them up. In other words, the primary goal of the FBI is to instill paranoia and fear among patriots to ensure that they never effectively organize to resist. So when you cheer the failure of that uh, J6 rally, he says we need to keep in mind that the establishment doesn't care. Getting people to show up was not their main intent. Making people afraid to show up for any other events in the future is what they want. And that issue presents a catch-22. If conservatives organize, there is the chance that some groups will be infiltrated or set up or used to make the entire movement look bad. If we don't organize, then we've lost the fight. It'll be over before it even truly begins. And no, he says, the real fight has not started yet. So what is the solution? He says, I think it's odd, but not surprising, the standoff at Bundy Ranch has been memory-holed by the media and is rarely mentioned even among conservative activists these days. Yet it was probably one of the most successful patriot actions in the past couple of decades. This is why I say, someday the history books will reflect this. And he says, there are a number of reasons for this. Number one, the action was spontaneous, not pre-planned, and was in response to criminal activity by the FBI, including assaulting women that were protesting. And it was actually, it was the Bureau of Land Management, but the FBI was a presence there. Their hostage rescue team, their, actually their anti-terrorism task force team was there as this 200-man militarized task force took over that particular corner of, uh, of Nevada. It's a very remote uh, area, but uh, wow, there was, it was a very military-like operation. 
when those uh, BLM uh, personnel, I don't remember how many trucks they had. They, they had like Tahoes or Suburbans, but uh, they all had uh, their, their flashing police lights. And they drove like they were driving through Mogadishu. They drove like they were driving through Mosul, uh, Iraq. Full speed, lights going, laws don't apply to us. You know, it was like a, like a convoy. Just crazy. But the idea is the movement that took place to was that took action rather there in Bunkerville was to remedy a government trespass rather than just create a standoff out of nothing. Secondly, there was no single person in charge. You had groups show up from all over the country. Some of them squared away tip of the hat to the Arizona Praetorian Guard. Those guys were very professional, very squared away. There was, I don't know. Some, some of the most competent people that I think I've ever met within the militia movement. And there were other people who were screw-ups. Now, they may they sound like a bad thing, says Brandon Smith, but in terms of rebellion, he says it's often better to avoid streamlined, top-down leadership. Frankly, he says, I'm suspicious of anyone that tries to anoint themselves the leader of the liberty movement or the sole leader of a protest action. He says, cult of personality is the most useless thing I can think of when it comes to battling tyranny and top-down leadership can easily be manipulated or controlled. He also says, because of the decentralized nature of the response to Bundy Ranch, the feds had no way to influence or predict the outcome. And they really hate that. Without informants in key positions, by the way, they did have undercover agents in the crowd, though. When I was there the Thursday before at Bunkerville, you know, before the standoff there, there was very clearly people who fit the description, just like at the J6 uh, you know, demonstration a couple of weeks back. You could tell that there were some people who were there. Hello, fellow patriot. <laughs> Don't let that earpiece in my ear give anything away. But the feds couldn't adapt to those quickly changing circumstances. Now, contrast that with Malheur, where the feds were basically in control from the very beginning. The site itself was so isolated and ill-conceived that the FBI was able to dictate every movement of patriots in and out of the area. Now, again, Brandon is partially right there. He's also partially wrong. One of the reasons they chose that uh, refuge was because it was isolated and it wasn't going to disrupt people's everyday lives there in Burns, Oregon. The only entities that did that were federal and state law enforcement, primarily federal law enforcement. They were the ones who came in with a siege mentality. But as far as, uh, as dictating movement of patriots in and out of the area, I can tell you that's not accurate. Because Lavoy Finnicum and Ryan Bundy, in the middle of that, uh, that occupation, left the refuge, drove to southern Utah. Lavoy was a guest on my radio show. And then they drove back. Now, would you see somebody, okay, time out, I got to go somewhere and leave for, you know, a day or two and then come back? Hardly. But his point is taken. The feds had far greater control because they controlled the ways in and out of that, uh, that refuge. And when they decided to crack down after the arrest, yep, they locked it down and made sure nobody could come or go. But again... Prior to that, they had no arrest warrants. They, had, they didn't even know if any laws had been broken. Also, going back to Bundy Ranch, Brandon Smith points out that patriots at Bundy Ranch arrived peacefully, but with the will to fight if necessary. They were there to defend the Bundy family. 
and the Bundy Ranch response had a clear objective, and that's to stop the FBI from harming the Bundys and to retrieve the stolen cattle if possible. Both of those objectives were accomplished, and with no shots fired, a complete success. The group was motivated and unified by the objective, not a singular leadership. But without a clear objective, Brandon Smith says, look, there's no purpose to any action. So he says it's important to understand the difference between a Lexington Bridge moment and a Fort Sumter moment. During Lexington Bridge, the revolutionaries took action to stop a British detachment from arresting colonial leaders and confiscating rifle and powder stores. The British were in the midst of an undeniable attempt to disarm and snuff out the resistance. Now, at Fort Sumter, the Confederate attack was in response to an attempted resupply of the fort itself, which made sense strategically, but looked like an act of pure aggression to the wider public. The concept of states' rights, more prominent in the minds of the Confederates than the issue of slavery, fell by the wayside. But eventually, tyranny has to put boots on the ground. A totalitarian system can function for a time on the color of law and implied threats, but it will crumble unless it's able to establish a physical presence of force. Once those jackboots touch soil in a visible way and the agents of the state try to expand oppressive measures, rebels then have a free hand to disrupt them or bring them down. But that only works if there are objectives and enough decentralization to prevent misdirection of the movement. So some organization is essential. You can't avoid it. All the gray men and secret squirrel preppers out there that think they're going to simply weather the storm in isolation and pop out of their bug-out locations to rebuild are suffering from serious delusions. In fact, he says, I can't help but think of the moment in Lord of the Rings when the Ents refused to, to organize to fight against the invading orcs. Pippin suggests to Mary the problem is too big for them and they should go back to the Shire to wait out the war. And Mary laments, well, the fires of Isengard will spread. And the woods of Tuckborough and Buckland will burn, and all that was once green and good in this world will be gone. There won't be a Shire, Pippin. And to that, Brandon Smith says, look, if this fight is not pursued now, there will be no world worth coming back to, even if you were able to successfully hide from it. So, organization must be accomplished. It should be built at the local level. And this is far more important than any dreams of a national organization, at least for now. There is no one we can trust to lead such a nationwide revolt, and that includes political leaders like Donald Trump. Will federal intrusions happen? Yes. Of course. But at the local level, it's much easier to vet people according to their behaviors and to root out bad actors. So Brandon Smith suggests hold your local meetings to discuss current events and create a place for people to network and to get to know each other. Talk to your local businesses or your county sheriff to see where they stand on issues like vaccine passports and Biden mandates. But he says, put things in motion now or you will regret it later when your community is completely disjointed and paralyzed by fear during crisis or government subjugation. And what about the first guy at your meeting that starts talking about building bombs or drafting kill lists or kidnapping governors? Well, Brandon Smith says, kick his ass out promptly. And make sure everyone knows why you did it. Most likely he's a Fed or he's on an informant payroll. As our national composure breaks down, he says, and the manure hits the fan, Fed informants and agents will suddenly disappear from these groups without a trace. They're not going to stick around for what happens next because the government doesn't pay them enough for that. And knowing who the patriots are will not help the federal government if the patriots are organized to defend themselves. That's the reality they don't want us to wake up to. 
Pretty interesting stuff, no? But it's an interesting quandary that we find ourselves in. I mean, how do you know, you know, that you can trust people? I mean, I I have a group of friends that I have been good friends with for quite some time. You know, the better part of two decades. Them I would trust. But even so, you know, there's there's always the chance that, hey, somebody new showed up. This guy's got skills. He's, uh, you know, he seems really interested, seems very motivated. He's here to help us. But man, beware. You know, I can get you guys uh, parts for silencers if you want to build some off-the-book silencers or anything. Oh, well. Somebody starts talking about doing stuff that's illegal. That should be a real big red flag that uh, maybe that's bait dangling in front of you. I guess if there were if there is one fail-safe that I could point to, and uh, this is something that I saw the Bundy family use, and that would be your faith in God better be a part of this equation. If you that if you trust that God would would help you and would give you guidance, why not take advantage of that? Why not turn to the to the great judge of the universe in your moment of need? Now I'm going to remind you, it didn't spare the Bundys from the many members of their family from spending the better part of 2 years sitting in prison awaiting trial. They suffered terribly for making their stand. But I think the bigger lesson is God did deliver them in the end. So let's not forget that. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty Show on the America Out Loud Network.